Oh, we'll sing that again. Looking forward to singing that again. It's a beautiful song, praise to the Lord. I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. Acts chapter 2. There's been some time since we've been in the book of Acts. We've had a lot of intervening messages and opportunities to focus on the Christmas story and some thoughts for the new year, Psalm 91. Of course, we have the Lord's table, and usually we focus on the subject of reconciliation. But I'd like to turn back to our study in the book of Acts. And as we come back to it, I just want to remind us, as we look at these early chapters, we're seeing the work of the Holy Spirit. We're seeing the work of Christ following his ascension into heaven. Of course, he had that time in the first chapter where he was with his disciples following his resurrection, teaching them, giving them direction to wait in Jerusalem. They saw him ascend into heaven, Acts 1, 9 through 11. They went to the upper room. They were praying there together. According to scripture, they needed to replace Judas, who had betrayed the Lord and left an office to be filled. And of course, Matthias was chosen. And then the last time we considered uh, this chapter, we considered the first part of the chapter and what God was doing there on Pentecost, the day of the Pentecost, when it was being fulfilled. If you notice that, uh, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come or literally is being fulfilled, that Old Testament feast is being fulfilled in God's purpose on this day. And what is God doing? What had he promised? He had promised the coming of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit, and the Spirit arrived on Pentecost. Suddenly, spectacularly, there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. There was an appearance of tongues of fire resting on each of the disciples. The disciples began to speak in languages that were native to the people who were visiting as pilgrims. The disciples were Galileans. They had not learned those languages, and so people saw the miraculous nature of what was taking place. And they were perplexed as they looked at what was going on. They were astounded, and someone suggested that the disciples were full of sweet wine. End of verse 13, and Peter, hearing that charge, responded with an explanation that this was by no means the effect of wine. This was God at work. This was the pouring out of the Spirit. And he argued that the Lord from heaven had poured out his Spirit in fulfillment of a promise made through the prophet Joel. That's how he explained the supernatural signs, the speaking of prophecy by all of these disciples, the prophesying of God's words in all of these different languages miraculously. He went on to argue that Jesus. The Nazarene is God's Messiah. He has risen from the dead. He had received divine testimony by his supernatural ministry of miracles, raising the dead, healing lepers, all sorts of things, healing those who are blind, deaf, dumb, 
blame. And his rejection and crucifixion and death was actually the outworking of God's plan. Notice, as Peter says in verse 23 of Acts chapter 2, this man or this one delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. He also argued that his crucifixion and death was perpetrated by those who were listening to his message on this very day. The ones who were present listening were responsible for the death of Jesus, for the death of the Messiah. But God raised him from the dead, and that too was in keeping with the scriptures. He quoted from Psalm 16, starting in verse 25, as he quotes David David's testimony there was to one who would not be abandoned to Hades, the holy one that would not undergo decay, verse 27. That couldn't be David. His tomb was there in Jerusalem to that very day. But that spoke of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus was in keeping with God's promises to David in the Davidic covenant. You see in verse 30. God promised to set one of David's descendants upon the throne, and so he raised Christ from the dead. And Peter, and James, and John, Andrew, Bartholomew, all of those apostles standing there, including recently elected, uh, chosen by the Lord, Matthias, are there to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So this united testimony, not only by the disciples who met in the upper room, the 120, but the apostles themselves officially are now giving testimony as witnesses. And Christ had said that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost part of the earth. Well, here's Jerusalem. And here is their testimony as the Spirit is poured out. And in addition to their testimony to the resurrection of Christ, Peter explains that what has taken place today is actually the act of the risen and ascended Christ. He sits upon the throne of heaven. He has asked of the Father, received the Spirit, and poured out the Spirit upon his people. He's been exalted And he is both Lord, verse 36, and Christ, or Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's how, at least at that point, the message ends. And that can either be believed or rejected. And for those who are standing there hearing Peter preach, Verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were, alternate reading is, wounded in conscience. We'll talk about that word, but then it says, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? What Peter had proclaimed resulted in their being convinced of the truth. And it resulted in conviction of their sin. 
I think there's a admission there, an acknowledgement that they are guilty even by their question. What shall we do? What are we to do? And Peter gives them what they are to do. Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And it goes on to describe what's taking place there in the early church. This is really the reception of that same spirit who came upon the disciples as the apostles are being empowered to witness, the same ones now listening have been given the promise that they too can receive the Spirit. And this is the reception of the Spirit. It's obviously the reception of the truth of Jesus as the Messiah. And it's also the reception of the forgiveness of sins. Graciously, God is giving this crowd who were, according to Peter's words, responsible, very responsible, directly responsible for putting to death the Messiah. Jesus had prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And upon this day and at this time, as they turn to God from their sin, God is granting graciously forgiveness. I want you to first notice the crowd's conviction resulting from Peter's message. That word, when it says pierced to the heart, it's a word that could mean stabbed or pricked, cut to the heart. One translation has it. Another Bible has it acutely distressed. And it does have the idea of piercing. The root of this word is found in John 19 when it says the soldiers pierced Jesus' side. This isn't an outward piercing. This is an internal piercing. The Old Testament uses this word. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this word when the sons of Jacob came in from the field and they heard that their sister had been defiled. And they are pierced to the heart and they become angry. It's also used in the translation of Leviticus 10 when the Lord had struck Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire, false worship. God did not command that, and Moses came and described to Aaron. He, he said to Aaron that what the Lord has done is in keeping with what he said. Leviticus 10.3 says, Moses told Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. And the end of that verse so, says, so Aaron, therefore, kept silent, is the way it's translated. Pierced to the heart. Convinced, convicted of the truthfulness of what was said. Now, conviction is not something that can be seen, per se, but its effects can be seen. 
Peter's fellow Jews here, as they're listening, are under a sense of their own sinfulness. They've been charged with the crucifixion of the Messiah. They have clearly been shown that the actions of this day on the part of God have come to pass in keeping with his word. And they're responding with that question following the conviction is then the question which they ask Peter. And notice it says Peter and the rest of the apostles. You can imagine them saying, what are we going to, what are we to do in light of what we've done? And that's really a, the right kind of question when someone comes to a sense of their own sinfulness. It's not disregard of what you've done. It's not despair because God offers forgiveness. That question is a confession. They recognize they're guilty. They realize that they had indeed killed the Messiah. They recognized that they were wrong about him, but they were at a loss to know what to do about it now. Is there any possibility that they could avoid the judgment of God for taking the life of their promised king? What are we to do? And really what Peter does here by the power of the Spirit, what happens here is really what we hope for when we preach the gospel message. That there would be a convincing of the sinner of his or her sin to the point where they sense that they are under the judgment of God because they are. And that they're helpless unless God should show mercy. Every sinner needs to come to that place where they see that they have sinned against God, that they've broken his law, that there's not something they can do to remedy that. If you're trying to keep the law, you have to obey it all, all your life. What must I do to be saved? Another sinner under conviction asks. And I would ask you today, have you ever come to that point where you realize that you were under God's judgment for your sins? And you asked, what, what should I do? What can I do? What must I do? And you wanted to know right away. You didn't want to wait. You didn't want to push it off to another time. The question is in real time. It's following this message. It's in the light of this day that God has owned by his power and might by the sending forth of his spirit. Brethren, they want to identify with these apostles. Men and brethren, there's an appeal to these ones who are testifying and speaking. What shall we do? That conviction and that question leads to Peter's response. And it's a wonderful response because it's as significant today as it was then in terms of those who 
need Christ. There's interesting grammar in verse 38. Repent is a call to every person, every one who's asking the question. But then there's a particularizing of the command to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is for everyone. The message is for everyone, but each person must individually respond. It's not a corporate response. There's not going to be a representative response. There's going to be an individual response. And that response will be seen as the person themselves turns from their sins and is baptized in Jesus' name. The command, first of all, to repent is the command of the gospel message. The good news that we receive about Jesus Christ, that he came into this world to save sinners, that good news comes with a command. Turn from your sins. Turn from your unbelief. Put your trust in him. But you must repent. You must change your mind and change your actions as a result. Repentance is a turning away from sin and a turning unto Christ and God. In the Westminster Confession, they define repentance as an evangelical grace. They said repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Jesus Christ. Immediately upon defining repentance, they're talking about faith. And these two are two sides of the same coin, the response of the gospel, the command of the gospel is to repent and believe. That's why when the man, the jailer in Philippi said, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say repent there. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But the implication was repentance as well. Westminster Assembly went on to write repentance By it, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in the ways of his commandments. And if we could just boil that down, we're talking about a turning away from sin, a turning to God. And as you turn away from sin, you apprehend what sin is. It's filthiness. It's odiousness in their words. Sin is what put Jesus on the cross. That's why he had to suffer. The Lord has laid on him, Isaiah says, the iniquities of us all. It was because of our sins that he had to suffer. And so in coming to God through Christ, we turn from those sins and we place our faith in Jesus as that substitute in our place who paid the debt of our sins. Now, this call to repent is certainly a repentance from unbelief. Remember, Peter had convicted them of crucifying the Messiah. They did not believe that Jesus was sent by God. 
They did not believe he was the son of God. They did not believe he was the I am. They not, did not, in spite of his miracles, they did not recognize him. Now, if they were to repent, they would need to change their mind about him. Instead of rejecting him, they must embrace him as the Messiah. Who is Jesus? Do you accept what the Gospels teach about Jesus? Just read through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. Born of a virgin, Matthew 1. You either accept that or you don't. Even the wise men came and said, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. And when they finally found him, they worshiped him. And through the gospel of Matthew, as Jesus goes on and is performing miracles and teaching, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to have the power to forgive sins. And you either believe that or you don't. But that's the claim. Who is this that thinks that he has the power to forgive sins? No one can forgive sin but God alone. Jesus demonstrating that he had the power to forgive sins would say, rise up and walk. And he would do that intentionally to help people to see that he had the power of God, yes. But he also had the power to forgive sins on earth as the son of man. Mankind's universal king. That question, where is he that is born king of the Jews, was answered by the Magi. But it was held in question by many. But even the blind men in Matthew are calling out, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus is responding. And Jesus is healing their blindness. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Remember what was written on his cross? This is Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. Three different languages. The religious leaders didn't like that, didn't want that. They wanted it just to be said that he said that, not that he was that. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And you can either accept that Jesus truly is, or he isn't. But the Bible says there in Matthew that he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he gave commandment to his disciples to make disciples of all the nations. He said, all power, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Now, either he is or he isn't. Peter is asserting again in the message that he has proclaimed that he is both Lord and Christ. And for these who are standing there this day, they must change their mind. They must confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead. And if they do that, what will happen? According to the biblical promise, Romans chapter 10, they will be saved. Peter not only says repent, but in the middle of verse 38 there, he says, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this 
reference to baptism on the heels of the call to repentance has confused some. Some would say, based on this passage, they believe the Bible is teaching that baptism is necessary for salvation. Notice what it says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That has caused some to say, well, it must be necessary to be baptized in order to be saved. Now, I think if you think of one way of salvation, you'd have to go back beyond the time of baptism into the Old Testament and say how many of those people were baptized. And if you said, well, it has to do with circumcision, I'd also say, well, how does Job then know God? And how is Job a believer? And how is anyone before that sign of circumcision was given a believer? Enoch. Circumcision was a sign. Baptism is also a sign. It's an outward sign of something inward. The outward sign doesn't always mean that what is inward has happened. Even Moses cried out to the children of Israel and said, or, or called them in his messages in Deuteronomy, circumcise your hearts. It was really the internal that was necessary. So what's taking place here, and we have to consider the context, when Peter says here, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, they were familiar with baptism. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. It was an outward sign that a person was turning from their sins, repenting of their sins. That was the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, as he proclaimed a baptism of repentance. He was really calling all of Israel from the commoner all the way up through the leadership of Israel to be baptized. And of course, there are some who rejected his message, but many responded. But it wasn't the baptism. It was what that was signifying. It was signifying that there was a change of heart, a change of life. They sought guidance from John as to what they ought to do. Here, this outward sign is a sign of identification with Jesus. Repent is turning from sin, turning to God. Being baptized is an outward sign of identifying with Jesus' name as the Messiah. It's not baptism that saves. We'll talk about forgiveness of sins in just a moment, but baptism doesn't save. Contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, the causes of justification are, among other things, the Council of Trent said, the instrumental cause of is, they say, the sacrament of baptism, which is the sacrament of faith, without which no man was ever justified. And I would say if that's your understanding of salvation, that's not the Bible's teaching. No. No, no, not a thousand times no. Baptism does not justify. Faith alone justifies. Baptism is not, as they say, the labor of regeneration. Baptism is a sign that someone has turned from their sins and has been born again. It is a testimony to the work of Christ in the heart. 
One catechism asked the question, this is the one that Spurgeon used in his congregation, the Puritan catechism, he called it, what is baptism? Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ, Matthew 28, 19, to, the, to be to the person baptized a sign of his fellowship with him, with, that is with Jesus in his death and burial and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, Galatians 3, 27, of remission of sins and of his giving up himself to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. It has to be repeated that it is a sign of that fellowship. It is a sign of your identification. It's the outward picture of that, that you have turned to God, turned from your sins. And specifically when it's baptism in Jesus's name, it's turned to him. And what's the promise of the gospel message? The command here is repent. That's something that takes place in the heart, is evidenced in the life. Baptism is that outward sign. But what's the promise of the gospel message? And God promises some amazing blessings. The first of which is the forgiveness of your sins. The pardon of your sins. And beyond that, and very significant on this day, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit who came upon them and caused them to speak in these other languages, the same spirit that enabled Christ to do all of those miracles, that same spirit is a gift from God given to all who call upon him, who turn from their sins and put their trust in Christ. Now, that word for is, might be what trips some up because you see baptism or baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for, that's the word ace. It's a preposition that can mean for or because of, or it can mean unto. However, we understand this verse, you cannot come to the place where you understand it in light of other teaching of the word of God that through baptism, sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive. And he does so freely by his grace, not because man has somehow achieved it or done something that has somehow gained it. Yes, we believe and repent, but even that is not the cause. That is the means by which we receive the gift of salvation. Turn over to Acts chapter 13 for a moment. As Peter, excuse me, Paul is preaching in Acts chapter 13, and he proclaims forgiveness of sins. It's a wonderful message as he preaches in this synagogue. He comes to the end of it. And he says in verse 37, he whom God raised, speaking of Jesus, did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed. The word there is justified from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. How is a person justified? They're justified by faith. 
that verse clearly places the emphasis on faith as the means, but it is through Christ. Why are we forgiven? It's Christ. He forgave sins on the earth. He forgives sins when he's seated on the throne of heaven. God, the Father, forgives sins. Paul is proclaiming that forgiveness of sins comes through faith. Now, why would Peter say what he said and how he said it? Why would he say, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the holy gift of the Holy Spirit? I want to ask you to turn to another passage. It's Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see three times you have an account of Paul's testimony of salvation. Acts chapter 9, 22, and a few chapters later, Paul is talking about that scene. If you look at verse 6, As he's going to Damascus, I'll start there, but it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? Interesting question. What shall I do, Lord? Paul is confessing after hearing the name Jesus, being confronted with this bright light. What shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, get up and go on into Damascus, and there will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one, reference to Christ, and to hear an utterance from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And again, you have in the same context of salvation, a reference to baptism and even a reference to washing away your sins. Well, what washes away sins? It's not the water. It's the blood of Christ. And when a person calls out upon God and asks for forgiveness through Christ, they're granted that. But in the very moment that a person would call upon God or identify with Christ in the New Testament, I think this practice of baptism was so closely associated that you find it in connection with the very call to respond to the gospel. 
And that's why we come to a passage like this and we say, well, it seems like it's baptism. It's really not. But in the New Testament, there was a call to turn and trust, and the baptism was the outward sign of the inward reality. So if you go to John at the Jordan and you're baptized, when are you repenting? Well, you're repenting in your heart, but what's the outward sign? It's when you're baptized. When you come to Christ, that is something that takes place in the heart. But when does the world see it? What's the sign to the world that you have believed in Christ? It's when you're baptized. It's a sign. It's an outward indication. It's not the inner reality. And because of the teaching that baptism saves, when people say that and teach that, that's part of the reason that we are careful to emphasize the necessity of faith alone. And we go to passages like Acts chapter 13, which shows that it's belief. It's faith. Being justified, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, by faith we have peace with God. And so, yes, baptism is important, but it is not necessary for salvation. I just went through some of the Old Testament references. You could also look at the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized. But Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. You might say, well, he never had the possibility. If that's the way salvation happens, it's supposed to happen. How could he be saved? Be too late. No, salvation is by faith. Turn back, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. So is baptism necessary? Well, baptism is that first step of obedience when a person believes in Christ. That's what Paul, that's what Peter is calling them to here. I think if you read through the book of Acts, you see baptism following on the heels of a confession of Christ. Or in the New Testament, it's many times it's right, as they're confessing Christ, they're also being baptized. But the water is not washing away their sins. God is doing that. The baptism is the outward sign. Now, there could be someone here today, and you do know the Lord. You've put your trust in the Lord, but you've never been baptized. I want to encourage you to take that step of obedience. That is the outward sign that you have trusted in Christ. And there could be some, I know there are some who've talked with me, and we may in the future here have a baptismal service because there are those who have trusted in Christ, and they want to obey the Lord in that way. That's the right thing to do. I remember as a young person, as I heard of a friend who my pastor said when he was baptized, he said, now he has done the right thing. When he put his trust in Christ, he wanted to be baptized. And I realized I need to be baptized because I put my trust in Christ. And I think particularly with Children and young people, we want to be careful that you understand and you know what baptism is so that you're not confused and think that somehow that saves you. So we are careful. We try to be careful. But yes, a person who is trusted in Christ needs to be baptized. Testimony of their relationship with Christ here in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, as Peter calls these who are listening to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, it very definitely would have been repentance because they crucified him. And of course, 
there's a sense in which when those who were baptized by John submitted that baptism, they were also following John's teaching. In this case, it's a baptize, being baptized in Jesus' name to follow Jesus and his teaching. And the promise is the forgiveness of sins, to have all of your sins forgiven when you put your trust, when you turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ. And I would ask you today, do you know that your sins have been pardoned? Do you know that your sins have been forgiven, that they've been washed in the blood? When God forgives sins, he forgives them entirely. When it comes to salvation and justification, when your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven for what you've done, what you're doing, even what you will do. That's justification. Now, that's not to be abused. You don't take grace from God and use it as a reason, and God will certainly discipline someone who goes on in sin. But forgiveness, as Paul said in Acts chapter 13, when God grants it, he justifies us from all things. What have you done? How have you sinned? How have you broken God's law? Have you been forgiven for those things? Have you found forgiveness through Jesus Christ for your sins? Or, as someone has said, are those sins still piling up around you? to then be a part of that which is read before the judge at the judgment seat when you stand before him. I don't want that for myself. I certainly don't want that for you. You don't have to have that. But you need to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. He paid for, paid the debt of our sins. Read Isaiah 53, read Psalm 22, read through the New Testament. You see Jesus' death is a death of penal substitution where Jesus suffered in our place and paid the penalty that we deserved. We put our trust in him. Our sins are forgiven. If we don't put our trust in him, those sins remain. The other promise of the gospel here is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of verse 38. Repent and be, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is, as Peter has spoken of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 33 in the same chapter. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... Jesus, in the first chapter, spoke of the promise of the Father. The promise coming from Joel 2, which he quotes there in his sermon, it shall be in the last days I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. Isaiah 44, verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring. And then he says, my blessings on your descent, or my blessing on your descendants. We don't have time to develop it, but actually what's taking place is the promise of the new covenant. 
is being realized. The Spirit would come upon those and give a new heart. There would be a new spirit because the Spirit of God would come and change the person internally. To receive the Spirit is to receive new life. To receive the Spirit is to be a new creature. To receive the Spirit is to be enabled in the way of obedience. Read Ezekiel chapter 36 or Jeremiah 31, and you'll see that the promise that is being fulfilled here is a promise of the new covenant. And what a gift. The Holy Spirit has actually been the focal point of this day. He has been sent from heaven by Christ. He has come in power and authority and performed amazing miracles in the eyes and ears of all these people. He's given the disciples the ability to speak in languages that they had not learned to people native to places where the disciples had not been. They understand the works of God because someone is speaking to them in their own language, and the person speaking has never learned that language. God is empowering them. And the promise to these who are there listening to the disciples is the same spirit who has been poured out on the disciples, who has done these amazing things, is for you too. But you need to turn from your sin. You need to repent. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. There will be forgiveness. There will be a reception of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And look at the scope of the promise. Look at verse 39, just briefly here. The scope of the promise of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness is for them who are hearing. But then Peter says, and your children. God's grace is not only going to extend to these who killed his son, the Messiah, but even to their children, should they believe on Christ, obviously. But even farther than that, it says, and for all who are far off. And by this, I believe what he means, and you can search it out, the Gentiles. Search it out. Acts 22, 21 refers to those who are far away. Ephesians chapter 2 refers to those who are far off. The Gentiles, those Gentiles that he is going to call will also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Read through the book of Acts, and as the Spirit comes, he comes not only on the Jews in early part of the book of Acts, but eventually the Samaritans, and then eventually it broadens to the household of Cornelius, Gentile household, and then Ephesus. And as you look at the New Testament, of course, the Spirit is coming upon many, many, many Gentiles. And that, too, is in keeping with what the Old Testament said that God's salvation was going to be made known not only to his people, but his people would be witnesses to the nations so that God would be worshipped by all people and that they would all proclaim God's mercy and praise him for his mercy. What a gracious God that he would grant forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit for all who God calls that call upon him. And I could ask today, And I would ask today, do you have the Spirit of God living within you? If he is within you, if you put your trust in Christ by faith, that's a gift that's been given to you. And he is never, listen, listen, he's never going away. It is the guarantee of your resurrection. It's the guarantee of eternal life that the Spirit of God is within 
What a gift. Sometimes I quote to my daughters that verse. When I give them something, I say, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give? What did Jesus say? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. There is no greater gift. The presence of God himself indwelling you, granting you eternal life. This is the promise when a person turns and trusts in Christ, they receive eternal life. How is that ensured? The scripture calls it the sealing of the spirit, the earnest of our inheritance, the guarantee that we will live forever with God is the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Yes, our sins are forgiven, but more than that, we have eternal life. We'll be with God forever. How do I receive that? Repent, turn from your sins, put your trust in Christ. And Peter having to explain what he explained and go on, he didn't say just the words that are recorded for us here. That's what verse 40 tells us. Verse 40 says, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them. The tense of the verb there, solemnly testified, that's, that's what he did. That's the character or the quality of what he did that day. He solemnly testified. That's what I'm trying to do to, with you right now. That's what I try to do, by the way, when I preach God's word. I'm not up here to try to entertain, you know that. Not up here to tell jokes. If humor comes and it's incidental, fine, but that's not the purpose of what a preacher is supposed to do. He is to solemnly warn and testify to the truth so that people whose souls are hanging in the balance will believe and will have eternal life. Read through the book of Acts, and when when Luke describes the preaching of the gospel, he describes it in terms of solemn testimony, like you would give in a court of law. Preachers who stand up in the pulpit and try to entertain people are foolish. That's not the way to preach the gospel. Souls are hanging in the balance. Peter here is sober and earnest as he recognizes that there are thousands of his countrymen who've rejected Christ. And as he solemnly testifies to them, he's doing just what Jesus said to do. Jesus said, Acts chapter 10, verse 42, Peter's quoting or referring to what Jesus said to do. It says he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. I can say on the power, the the, the authority of the word of God. Jesus Christ will be your judge. He will be your judge. Jesus said the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all would honor the Son as they honor the Father. He's mankind's universal king. He is the judge of all the earth. And God has fixed today, Paul said in Acts chapter 17, when he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, and he has furnished proof to all men by raising that one from the dead. 
he will be our judge. For those who believe, yes, we'll meet him in judgment. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's also the great white throne of judgment. Read about it in Revelation. And there will be those who will stand. And so when Peter here is verse 40, solemnly testifying, and he kept on, here's the other verb. It's a different tense. It's, a, it's an imperfect, which means it, it's a continual thing. He kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved or escape from this perverse generation. He's calling those who are listening to him to save themselves from a generation that was crooked. The word perverse means crooked. Another translation has it corrupt. It comes from the word, the Greek word comes from the word we get our word scoliosis, the curvature of the spine. But when it's applied to a generation, it's, it indicates this generation is not right. And so if you're part of a generation that is not right, you need to turn and repent and get to the place where you are right. And what's the change that needs to take place? Well, they need to change their mind about Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, speaking of a crooked generation, says they've acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but they are a perverse and crooked generation. That was a part of a song the children of Israel were to sing. Later on, God gave it to Moses so that he would give it to the children of Israel. As they would sing that song, it would be a testimony to them of what God said would happen to them. It was a testimony not only of who God was, but of what they would be. And if they turned from their sin, of course, he would rescue them. That generation was idolatrous, that turned from him, disobedient, foolish, unwise. And in this generation, the generation that Peter is speaking to, the generation where the Christ has come, He has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, poured out his spirit. The generation that is crooked is the generation that would not receive him. Now that I I say that with sober judgment, based upon what the word of God teaches. It's a Christ-rejecting generation. So the question is, as Albert Simpson wrote in his song, what, what will you do with Jesus? Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken, what mean meaneth the sudden call? What will you do with Jesus? Jesus is standing on trial still. You can be false to him if you will. You can be faithful through good or ill. What will you do with Jesus? Will you evade him as Pilate tried, or will you choose him, whatever be tied? Vainly, you struggle from him to hide. What will you do with Jesus? Will you, like Peter, your Lord, deny, or will you scorn from his foes to fly, daring for Jesus to live or die? What will you do with Jesus? If you've ever heard the chorus, I remember hearing some men sing this song. And as they sang it a cappella with such a sobering chorus. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me?
you see, it, it kind of feels like I have the authority now, don't I? I can decide one way or the other. Not when you're standing before him and he is your judge. Now, now it's the other side. And there will be some, won't there? They will, they will claim to have known him. Lord, haven't we done many wonderful works in your name? And what will he say to them? Depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Now, the right response is the fifth stanza of that song, which says, Jesus, I give thee my heart today. Jesus, I'll follow thee all the way, gladly obeying thee, will you say, this I will do with Jesus. Do you know when someone does that? It's not a matter of just convincing their mind. It's a work of God. It's a work of God. Because Peter confessed Jesus was the Messiah, but Peter the one preaching this message, even Peter, what did Jesus say to him? Simon, son of Jonah, you're blessed. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. It does take a work of God to open our eyes to see. And you know what's blinding us before we come to Christ? Paul says it in Corinthians. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. The devil would love to destroy anything he can of Christ. He would love to blind people from believing upon him. Reading a book over the last year, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, there's just been a growing conviction of the devil's activity and his purpose to destroy really anyone, but especially God's people. So when... God, by his grace, saves someone. He transfers that person from that kingdom of darkness and puts them into the kingdom of light. And on this day, as Peter has preached his message, as he's proclaimed the gospel, as he's proclaimed the command to repent and turn from their sins, to be baptized in Jesus' name, he continues to testify and exhort them Verse 41 says, so then those who had, here's faith, received his word. That's faith. That's what's essential. That's what justifies. We're baptized. That's the sign. That's the outward indication that that had taken place in their heart. They're being baptized in Jesus' name. And Luke says that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 
3,000 believed on this day. The Spirit of God is not done after he pours out the Spirit on those disciples and testifies to those looking on. The Spirit comes and he indwells these 3,000, and along with the 12 and the 120, now there are over 3,000 witnesses at the city of the great king to proclaim Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. And some would look at this passage and say, how in the world could they all get baptized? You know, in 1970, as they did excavation around Jerusalem, they found 200-some ritual baths called mikvahs. Has a steps leading down into a place where there's water where someone could prepare and wash themselves prior to going into the temple. There are about, as I understood, there's about 50 closer to the Temple Mount, but around Jerusalem, there's plenty of places where they could have been baptized, even right there. So, what's taking place on this day? Well, this is Pentecost. This is the feast of the first fruits. 3,000 is not all. Continue through the book of Acts and see thousands and thousands of people believing. And each one of them, if they're obedient, being baptized in Jesus' name, becoming a part of the church, the witnesses who then preach the gospel to the world. Now, just at the conclusion of this message, I would just ask you what Peter preached to this crowd to do, to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Have you ever turned from your sins? Have you ever changed your mind about Jesus Christ and put your trust in him, confessed him as Lord? The promise is there, but it has to be received. Universal salvation is a falsehood. Works salvation is a falsehood. There's only one way. It's only through faith in Christ. And I would just invite you, even today, to come to him. To turn from your sins. To turn from your own thinking. To find forgiveness. The freedom that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that relationship is, he is Lord. And I am his follower. Would you come to him today? I asked that question, how do you do that? Well, that's something that takes place in the heart. We don't have come forward invitations. I think that can be confusing because sometimes people associate a movement in a service with conversion. What conversion is, it happens in the heart as there is a real transaction between your heart and God. That could happen right now. 
It could happen as we pray. It could happen as we sing the closing hymn. It could happen as you go home and get on your knees next to your bed and place your faith in Christ. But if it's genuine, it will be followed by an outward profession, an outward confession of Christ, which is baptism. That's that outward sign. So the invitation is there, and I don't know who today needs to respond to Christ. I would not be surprised at all if there's someone here needs to respond to Christ. He'll welcome you. As much as you may have sinned against him, he'll welcome you. And he'll wash you. I sometimes get emotional. I would hope to never, ever purpose to do that or make that a put on. It's not a put on. I know that souls are hanging in a balance. And if this crowd is like every other crowd where the gospel is preached, there is a dividing line of those who believe in Christ and those who do not. And those who believe in Christ will be together with God for eternity. And those who do not, it would actually be wrong for, you, for me to not warn you of the judgment. If I'm not honest with you, if I don't tell you that there's an eternal lake of fire, it'd be wrong. See, that's the danger. It's not just a matter of following Christ. It's what does he say to those who, even to those who thought they were his followers, but really weren't. They were living in iniquity and sin. He said, depart from me into everlasting fire. There it is. In Jesus' own teaching. He said much about it in his teaching. It would be wrong for me not to warn you. And if we get to the judgment seat and I have to give testimony, there'll be, there'll be a day when he wipes away tears. But if it's not before that day and if it's not that day, I'm sure it'll be with tears that I, I will have to say, I preached the gospel on January 15th, 2023, and they heard it and they know. I don't ever want to have to say that. Not about any of you. Let's pray. Lord, it is a wonderful 
promise, this forgiveness of sins, presence of the Holy Spirit within. We know we must embrace that through faith in Jesus based on the teaching of your word. And Lord, I pray that your mercy, your mercy that is higher than the heavens would be extended to anyone today who desires to call upon your name. And I know that it will, Lord, because you promised that it will, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Same Lord is rich unto all who call upon him, to those who call upon him in truth. So I trust, Lord, in that promise, and I ask, Lord, for your mercy and grace to be shown. Child, young person, young adult, adult, someone older. Lord, show your mercy, I pray. And for those of us, Lord, who know you, who have received this message, who have believed in Christ, who have followed Christ. Lord, we pray that we might be faithful to preach this message so that sinners might be turned from the error of their way and find peace in Christ, forgiveness in Christ, eternal life in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.